What is in a name? What is in a name? In the world of business, depending on what firm or company you're in, you know, the, the name can kind of, of that company can give you a boost, or maybe not a boost, depending on which company you're in. In education, being associated with a particular school or university. Well, you know, that, that I went to, and you kind of chat about it, and sort of, hmm, a bit of pride about that, you know, and so on. It can give you a little bit of a step up, can't it, in the world when you're applying for a job or a promotion. Names, they're funny things, aren't they? They can be associated with various things. You think about names can be associated with the disaster, perhaps, Auschwitz. Names can be associated with power. You think of Hitler in that kind of parallel situation. Names can be associated with a place of natural beauty. Where's in your mind right now? Maybe Hawaii. Maybe the Maldives. Maybe both together. Surf and lovely diving. That'd be great, wouldn't it? If names can be associated with fear, in my mind, Doctor Who. But what about the name Jesus? Now, a new atheist would have you believe that the name of Jesus is to be understood as the kind of the biggest cause of war within history. They may be right. But also, the, the name of Jesus is the, the major cause of, of blind ignorance today in our culture. He's been portrayed of this, as this manipulative first century teacher, a political firebrand. And he's often, Jesus, that is, unfairly undermined with evidence that is just overlooked. Jesus' life and his character have been smeared very often recently. But at least the new atheists do one thing, which is good in a sense. They hold the integrity of Jesus' name, that is, his life and his character, as one. Because when you question someone's name, you can't isolate the, their responsibilities as that person and their character. And throughout history, maybe you try to do it as well, you try and separate those two things in your life, but you can't. Think of Jeremy Frost at the moment, that secondary school teacher that was found in Bordeaux with one of his pupils. You know, he has the ability to teach. Many people have been commenting he was a very good teacher, but he has separated his responsibilities from his character. And he has, he's a teacher. He has an ability to teach, yes. But he also has a responsibility to teach too. He can't separate those two things. And often today, there's that kind of false dichotomy between the responsibility of, your, um, of you represented to the world in your name but also, you have the character of who you are made known to the world in your name. Let me illustrate. Think of the Royal Highness Prince Harry being in use a little bit recently, hasn't he? Now, if you just isolate the name Harry, you think lovable rogue, a little bit of a cheeky chap. You know, goes and does a few things. Let's not comment on those. But he's Prince Harry. And the term prince, his title has responsibilities associated with it. He is to lead, he is to represent this country. You cannot separate the two. What if you try? Well, the Harry will soon undermine the prince. What about the name of Jesus? Well, see, the new atheists have got it right in one way. He, he's either the destructive, manipulative, 
teacher that causes war and ignorance in people today. Or they are wrong. And he is the loving, powerful, miraculous saviour of the world. Whose name has wrongly been used to wage war throughout history. You can't have a fudge of the two, you see. You can't separate someone's character and their responsibilities, represented in someone's name. So he cannot be the lovely Jesus who you pay lip service to, perhaps at Christmas time, yet all year round you ignore. He's the loving, powerful Christ that demands radical response in people. He could be ignored, he could even be mocked. But if you do so, you are taking a big chance at the end of your short life. So in our passage today, we see Peter interpreting events that have been occurring. All sorts of miraculous events have happened in chapters 1 and 2. And uh, they're giving credit now in the miracles that have occurred to the name of Jesus. Why? Because in the name of Jesus, these miracles have occurred. Jesus had empowered his apostles by his spirit to do his work on his behalf, in his name. And you see, if you believe this history is occurring in the powerful name of Jesus, I guess the question that comes out of this passage is, how are you going to respond to that powerful name of Jesus? As we've seen previously, um, Acts is the continuing story of Jesus' ministry. Though he's not on earth now, seated at the right hand of his Father, ascended in glory, the Spirit now empowers his apostles to do his work on earth. And the name of Christ is powerful in history, as we've just heard. And the question is, are you willing to ignore him? He's not just a a, a nice teacher, he is the powerful saviour of the world who you cannot ignore without consequence as we'll see at the end of this passage so let's turn to um, the little passage we've been looking at there verses 1 to 10 we see here the apostles are rightly giving Jesus all the praise and the glory because as we see in our first point Peter healed in the name of Christ that name is critical here Last week we saw that rather idyllic picture of the church, didn't we? Do you remember that? All the the gathered followers had come around. Their their devotion was a lesson for us all in those last few verses. Chapter 2, verse 42, 47. The church had been commissioned by Christ, empowered by the Spirit. The people praised God. The Lord added to their number every day. It was really exciting. Things were good. And you see, cast your eyes back to chapter 2, verse 43 there. It says, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And what we get in chapter 3 is just one example of those many wonders and signs of chapter 2, verse 43. Luke simply provides a dramatic example of those many wonders and signs. But the impact, and you must get this, because it's, it's kind of a little bridge in the book of Acts. The impact of the miracle that we're going to look at in Acts 3, and the following sermon by Peter, if you like, marks a line in the sand for the church of God that has gone on forever, that the consequence has gone on forever. That is, what we see following this miracle and the sermon that follows is persecution. Persecution. 
And that starts then, Acts chapter 4, and continues to today, and tomorrow, and all the days to come. More of that next week. But first you know who performed the miracle. One commentator put it this way, it's a lovely little turn of phrase. The power was Christ's, the hand was Peter's. The power was Christ, the hand was Peter's. That is to say, we're in a unique time here in salvation history where the apostles have been appointed to perform signs of Christ, witnessing to Jesus' power and authority and lordship over everything. And in so doing, they are establishing the spirit-filled church to continue Christ's earthly work. Now let's look at some details. Look at verse 1 2 if you can with me. Um, Again, Luke, author, Brilliant historian. He, point, he paints a picture. Time and place. Now the fact that Luke was a doctor, we know from history, he notes that the man was crippled from birth. Do you notice that? That's important, isn't it? Because it sees the extent of the miracle. It highlights the kind of gravity of what's going on. The people knew this man. Crippled from birth. They knew his condition. Verse 3. Peter and John, they walked up the steps of the outer courts to the temple... Um, that they're about to enter through this enormous gate, the Nicanor Gate it was called. And here it's called, described as beautiful, as it's sometimes known as well. Now it was beautiful because it was 75 feet tall. It was kind of clothed in Corinthian brass. It was really ornate. All the, there's loads of carvings on it as well. They were to enter the inner courts for prayer when they met, well, this well-known cripple begging for money. Verse 4 and 5, cast your eyes down. Because it's all about the eyes here. Peter attracted his attention. Look at us. Imagine the intensity here. The expectation of the man must have been enormous, mustn't it? He'd asked for money and had these two burly men. We know Peter was fairly burly, you know, looking down at him, giving him attention that very, very few people have ever given him, sat at that gate. And it says he's expecting to get something from them. Verse 6, you're all singing the kids' song, if you know that, from Sunday school. But let's, let's read it instead of singing it. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. I'm going to note three things very, very quickly here. Firstly, Peter offered healing rather than money. Do you spot that? This man received something more valuable than the most generous gift that he'd ever received from someone walking past him. He not only had the ability to walk, but now he had the ability to work. But this is more than material. The the healing is is prioritised over the money, but the physical healing that's going on here points us a bit further on, doesn't it? Like Mark 2, if you remember that story there. It's pointing towards a spiritual necessity, a spiritual healing that we all need before an almighty and perfect God. On Friday, I passed a man at Vauxhall Station. I guess many of you are passing. He seems to have been there for a couple of years now. Uh, who begs for money there. I, many of you have seen much more than I have. Can you imagine one day if he were offered, I don't know, instead of just a, a little bit of change, someone just dropped a bag of £10 notes in front of him? Can you imagine if someone said, oh, you know, I've got, I've got some meal vouchers here for a local restaurant. They're going to feed you for the next 10 years of your life. Oh, you know, some businessman tycoon walks past and says, Look, I'll just give you a job. 100k do? How about a house? Or maybe even like his, some of his felt needs. He said, you know, 
actually, why don't we just deal with the, your obvious drink problem and I'll help you through that. I'll pay for your restoration if you like. I wonder which he would rather of all of those things. Well, I guess this was highlighted to me as I was looking at this man. It's my responsibility and yours to see that man's greatest need. And there is a need greater than all of the things that I've mentioned, and that is the forgiveness of his sin. We'll come to that more in the end, because that is the only thing that will bring complete healing. And it's only available in the powerful name of Jesus. How do we know that this man's healing is complete? We see it, look at it in verse 16. Uh, sorry, verse 6. Uh, Peter healed in the name of Jesus. At the end, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk, he says. So Peter's first command is for the man's attention. The second command is for him to get up and walk. But it's in the name of Jesus. That's the accompanying power, if you like, that only can achieve such a miracle. Verse 7 is brilliant, isn't it? Taking by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. It's kind of on the picture there, isn't it? But it, it, of Peter putting his hand out, it, it's not Peter sort of worrying, I'm not sure if I've managed this one, shall I have I pulled it off? I'll kind of hold him up for a bit. It's, it's not that, is it? Rather, he loves the man. He reaches his hand out. A little bit of remembering. It's exactly what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter. The point is the man is completely healed. Firstly, he stands and he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went into the temple courts walking and jumping and praising God. I remember when I had my... I've had a couple of back operations. I remember I had my... um, the last one, and you, you know, you're there. Like, I was lying down for ages, and I had 24 hours of slicing and dicing and all that kind of stuff in your back. And, and there I was, 24 hours after the operation, and some psychotic physio comes along and says, Right, up you get, get out of bed, and sort of drags you. She was ooh, pretty nasty. But there we go. And you get up, and I was going, Wow, I could walk again. And it was utterly amazing. And I have to say, I was at that moment praising God, gritting my teeth, but praising God at the same time. It was a wonderful feeling, but I certainly was not jumping round like this man who's crippled from birth, but in the powerful name of Jesus has been miraculously healed. The instantaneous extent of this healing is miraculous, but it is done in all the power of of Jesus. As I said before, the power was Christ's. The hand was Peter's. The, the apostles, they don't healed any power of their own, any skill of what they'd done. It's nothing to do with them, but rather only when they called upon the name and the power of Jesus and his authority as sat at the right hand of his Father in heaven. That is what healed this man. And what is your response to that powerful name of Jesus? Well, look what happened in the crowd here. You know, what was their response? Verse 9, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. They were filled with wonder. It's hardly surprising, is it, as a response given the, the, the whole magnitude of the situation. 
They knew that nothing fraudulent had gone on here. They knew the bloke. He was the cripple. And, you know, there's the wonder, amazement that he's now walking. Now, wonder is okay, isn't it? Amazement. Are we there? (laughs) Should we just turn it off? My battery's getting a little bit old, I think. Don't worry about it. See, wonder... Yeah, close that one down. Are we right? So the initial response is wonder, isn't it? Amazement. And that is fine, in a sense. But the man's response, look at that, it is far more appropriate. So verse 8, at the end there, what is he doing? He is praising God. Embarrassingly, after my back operation, I remember it took a number of years until I got back on skis. I was excited by that. And I went skiing, and uh, it was a wonderful thing. And I was nearly brought to tears. Uh, just the joy of being able to go down a mountain. It sounds pathetic, doesn't it? But I was. It was something I so looked forward to. And I got there. It was tears of pain as much as tears of joy. But it was a wonderful thing. And I was so overwhelmingly thankful to God for that very small thing. But when God does his healing work in our hearts, how do we respond? With wonder? Wow. God, you're great. Or with praise? Lives of praise. Let me just conclude this point. It's perhaps the least obvious thing about this miracle, but it is also the the most amazing thing about this miracle. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, the prophet, 600 years before this miracle occurred, predicting the Messiah Christ who was to come, points to a time when the lame will leap like deer. The miracle, though amazing itself, though a wonderful display of Jesus' power and authority over all things in this world. It's an amazing thing, but it's also a fulfilment of a prophecy to display Jesus' lordship and power and to bring in this new age where he is supremely in control, sat at the right hand of his Father. How are you going to respond to him? The powerful name of Jesus. How are you going to respond to that name? Peter healed in that name, the name of Christ. Secondly, Peter exalted the name of Christ. Let's look at verse 11. It just paints a picture of the scene, if I can. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. So the crowd gathered. Peter can't really help himself, as we're kind of getting, getting used to in, in Acts, aren't we? And there we go, verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel. I kind of put a big voice on, but as you can imagine. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we've made this man walk? Do you feel a sermon coming on at this point? It's just getting a little bit inevitable, isn't it, with Peter? It's, it's a wonderful thing. Now, it's very dense. I'm going to run through this very quickly. I'm going to point out three things very quickly. Firstly... He exposed the dishonour shown to Christ. He exposed the dishonour shown to Christ. Four disgraces. Look at them. Verse 13. Firstly, you handed over um, Jesus to be killed. You handed him over to be killed. Second um, exposing of the dishonour of, uh, of, of Christ. They said, you disowned him before Pilate. Thirdly, they said in verse 14... 
You disowned him. That is, you thought him so worthless that you thought you could throw Jesus away like a piece of rubbish. And fourth disgrace that Peter lambasts on, on these men of Jerusalem. Look at it, verse 15. It's kind of oxymoronic, if you know what I mean. You killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. I guess the penetration of those words from Peter would have just gone through every heart listening, every mind. They stood accused of the most atrocious crime of all history. But intermingled with this reality check for for the men of Jerusalem, Peter did something that all good sermons should do. He he ascribed honour due to Christ. The language is generous, but it's also deflecting. For at first... Peter clearly doesn't want any praise for himself. Look at it, verse 12. Why do you stare at us? He's saying. Peter wants everyone to know who's listening. It's not about us. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's all about his power, his glory, his honour. So in contrast to the dishonour, he spades onto the men of Jerusalem that are listening. He begins to honour God, honour his Christ, the Lord Jesus so verse 13, you get, you get, it kind of goes from there. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the God of our fathers. Peter, is what he's, he's collecting all these really well-known Old Testament phrases of these Jews who are listening. And he's saying, actually, this is the man who you should have understood to be all of these things. He's now he's the glorified servant Jesus, he concludes in verse 13. He said, that's the first honour I want to bestow on the Lord Jesus. Second Second honour, verse 14, he said, you descend, look at it, the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. It's a double honour he wants to pour onto Jesus Christ here, being the holy king and the righteous saviour. Peter is kind of saying to these men, do you really realise what you have done? How crazy you have been? Who you've had killed? These men were familiar with these terms uh, and They were waiting for a suffering servant. They were waiting for the Holy One to come and the Righteous One. But he was actually there, stood amongst them just a few weeks before and they'd had him killed. Third on verse 15, he said, you killed the author of life. Peter notes in this, he's just saying, if you want life, that is life with God, eternal life, it can only be found in the one that you've had killed. These men, these men of Jerusalem have killed Jesus, but the great news follows as Peter says, God raised him from the dead. And we are the witnesses of this. The apostles, we're the witnesses of it. And we know that as Jesus rises to new life, so can we. If like the cripple, we have faith in his powerful name. So Peter honours the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the men of Jerusalem, they dishonoured him. Now Peter honours him, ascribes honour by articulating articulate all these attributes, all these fulfilments of who Jesus is before the crowd. But in so doing, he very clearly describes the uniqueness of Christ. The uniqueness of Christ. Christ is no mere human being. He is unique in his suffering because he died as a servant for others. He's unique in his glory 
Because he defeated death and rose to new life because he's the author of life. He's unique in his mission as well because he came as the righteous one to save. All these attributes in this powerful name, Jesus, they go some way to showing how great and glorious he really is. So it is, verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. It is only by faith that we can know all the full implications of Jesus' name personally for us in our lives today in Ellsfield. It is only when we have that faith and we will know complete healing before God. Friends, is this the faith we proclaim? And is this the faith we need to take to our friends and to our families and to those around us at work or where we live? Because maybe they are at the moment, just like the crowd, they may be amazed a little bit when they gaze at Jesus, maybe even think he's you know, nice to pull out at Christmas and maybe a bit of Easter as well. But they are no closer to him for they lack the faith of the crippled man. And that is why Peter ends his sermon as he does. He appeals to the men of Jerusalem to put their faith in Jesus as Lord and trust in his powerful name. Look at it verse, we're going to go first 17 to 26, we're really going to fly through this, so do be careful, hold on to your seats. Look at it, verse 17. Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as, your leader, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God. I mean, the messages are simple in, in a sense. The response is simple. Say sorry. Turn to God. He's not saying that the men of Jerusalem are let off or that what they did doesn't matter before God. They will be held accountable. They killed Jesus. But Peter is saying that despite that awful outcome, God was in control. It's fulfillment of a prophecy and that Christ would suffer. But we need to be responsible, every single one of us. Turn to God. Repent. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to bother daily? Why should we bother that our friends turn to God? Why would we ever want to share this powerful name of Jesus with anyone? Well, because as we see in verse 18, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Christ, same word, Greek word for the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word. Okay, Jesus is the Christ who would suffer. He's the one who God would send into this world to save his people by dying on a cross. We know the gospel would to take our sin in our place. If we put our faith in him, that is counted to us. The result is more miraculous than the walking and the leaping of this man. Because if you repent, you see in in that first few verses that you will have your sins wiped out. And you see those wonderful phrases, that that time of refreshing. The time of refreshing that's referred there is both now and more to come in, in the future as well. 
I remember once at a camp, I was explaining to a young couple, and the, the girl was there, and she had, a, let's say, a messy past. You can read into that as you will, and you'll probably read halfway. And I remember saying to her, you know, as, as you repent, as you turn your life towards the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his powerful name, ask for forgiveness for your sin, then you will be forgiven. And it's amazing when you first, that sinks down into your heart and mind, how that transforms you, isn't it? She rightly and appropriately began to see herself as the Lord Jesus sees her. Clean. Right. Now she knew she would fail again. But what a refreshing relief to know that Jesus has dealt with our sin when he died on the cross. That is a time of refreshment. We, we can know that joy right now, today, if we've turned to Jesus and his powerful name. Knowing no pain and suffering will come in the future. The time of refreshing to come is amazing. But the time of refreshing now. Don't miss out on it. God will restore everything, verse 21. It's worth repenting, isn't it, for? I hope you believe that. So why should people repent? Uh, have your sins wiped out? Time to refresh them because he's the Messiah. Secondly, this is the prophet. We see that in verse 22 and 23. He showed that Jesus is not only the Christ, the Messiah, but he's also a prophet. Therefore, he's worth listening to. You must listen to everything he tells you, it says there. For he can only bring the, these blessings. That is Peter. He, he's not afraid here to really appeal to these men. If you don't listen, look at verse 23. Please read this for yourself right now. Verse 23. Because here's the warning. If you don't listen to Jesus the prophet, you will be cut off. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. There's blessing if you listen to Jesus, the prophet. But there is no blessing. There is being cut off if you refuse to listen. Third reason people should repent, that this is the offspring. Verse 25, he said to Abraham, Through your offspring all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So Jesus is not only the Messiah, the prophet, he's also the offspring. All that's been foretold comes in that line. So, and the point of that is in that line, in that covenant promise, right back in Genesis, there is blessing. If you come to Jesus, if you turn to him, there is blessing. <coughs> All of those things come together. Let me finish. We turn to Jesus. Sins wiped out. No refreshing eternally. Turn to Jesus. You'll never be cut off from him eternally. From his goodness and his love. Turn to Jesus and you will be blessed. Let me conclude. Just let me think of the people groups and maybe here. If you turn to Jesus, then thank God. That in his powerful name, you have been healed spiritually, completely. And leave tonight walking, maybe leaping, a little bit of leaping maybe. And most importantly, praising God with every single aspect of your lives.
Second people group may be here. If you haven't turned, if you haven't repented and trusted in Jesus' powerful name, then please do note the real and the true blessings, but also note the real and the true consequences for not turning to Jesus. There is warning here. And I guess there's a third people group, which many of us know. If we are Christians, many of us will have friends who are not here right now, who live with Jesus as just something they'll pick out of the closet every now and then. Maybe have a little reference to him at Christmas. Then I'd ask you to think about them, to pray for them tonight. Take on your responsibility to love them. And like Peter, take every opportunity to speak of Jesus to them. He is the promised Messiah Christ, the prophet and the offspring. And it is only in his powerful name that anyone will be completely healed. We have a responsibility, my friends, to pray for those people who have not turned to Jesus. Why don't you just in a moment of quiet, just pray for an individual, maybe a couple of people who you know, who you long for them to come to, come to Christ.